welcome to church. Welcome to the gathering that Jesus, God the Son, felt was worthy of him giving himself up on a cross in order to establish. As Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, Christ loved the church. Someone say, Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Amen. Now I want to start off this morning with some words that Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote to the church of Rome. And go ahead, turn to your Bibles in Romans chapter 13, or Follow along on the screen. Paul writes this. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you should not commit adultery, you should not murder, you should not steal, you should not covet. And whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore Love is the fulfillment of the law. Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Uh, Question, how does love fulfill the law? Because if you love someone, agape love, a love of the will, sacrificial love for the benefit of others, then you will obviously not harm them. You will not murder them if you love them. You will not steal from them if you love them because those things will be the exact opposite of loving them. Get it? Got it. Good. Now, my studies for this conversation, I came across a great analogy by Dallas Willard, super smart guy, kind of guy you got to read each page three times to even get close to understanding it, his book, The Divine Conspiracy. And Willard is discussing how Jesus on that Galilean hillside was wanting people to understand that God was always calling us to something much deeper than merely controlling our outward behavior. And then he goes on to say this. And go ahead and put that map up there. Here's what he writes. When I go to New York City, I do not think about not going to Boston or Washington, D.C. People do not meet me at the airport or station and exclaim that I did a great thing in not going somewhere else. I took steps to go to New York And that took care of everything else. He goes on to say, In like manner, when you value and treasure those around us, seeing them as people created in the image of God, and then you choose to love them with God's kind of love, then that takes care of everything else. Now understand, simply not going to Boston or Washington, D.C. is a poor plan for getting to New York City, right? Likewise, simply not stealing or murdering is a poor plan for loving people as God desires. In fact, it will not work. Sure, we may avoid going to Boston or D.C., but we never make it to New York City. However, if we make the decision with the help of God to love people the way God desires, that takes care of everything else. And listen, doing things that would harm them, well, we would never even get on that plane to begin with. Amen? Amen? Amen. I thought everybody was raptured and I closed my eyes. Everybody's gone. It's like, what the heck? It's like, where did it go? Whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Therefore, love is the fulfillment 
of the law. Pray with me. Ah, Lord, God, we thank you that our fears do not stand a chance when we stand in your love, God. We thank you that you're faithful, Lord. We thank you that you're able to do greater things in our lives than you've ever done before. And God, we come to you, and I just pray that we would come humbly, recognizing that your word is alive and active, that your word is like the rain and snow that falls down from the sky, causing things to bud and to flourish. God, that your word will not return void. God, I pray that you enable me to share your truth in a way, God, that honors you and draws people to a deeper relationship with you. Father, forgive me for my sins, for there are many, and enable me to speak well for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, let me set the scene. It's 30 AD, and Jesus has been preaching, teaching, and healing people for about a year. And so there's a, a very large crowd of people following after him. And as Matthew 5 opens up, it's time for Jesus to give his platform speech, to give his manifesto, if you will. It's time for Jesus to let everyone know what he's about and what his kingdom is about. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and began to teach him. And understand, this huge crowd of people was made up of people coming from different places and representing diverse ethnic, religious, and political backgrounds. I mean, in that crowd were the religious Jews from Judea with their devout commitment to observing the law. There were also Galilean Jews who the synagogue was not quite the obsession it was for the Judeans. Also in that crowd were non-observant Jews who dropped out of religious life altogether and were labeled sinners. There were Greeks from the Decapolis, the ten cities west of the Jordan there, with their love of art, philosophy, and athletics. And of course, the Roman foreign occupiers were in that crowd as well. Listen, what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount about the path to real life and about what life in his kingdom is all about, he addresses all these different people. And listen, this path that Jesus will unveil on that hillside was not what they expected and was not the path that most people were on. And here's the bottom line. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus declares that his kingdom is about being, about having, and about living. His kingdom is about being. Someone say being. being. It's about being a certain kind of people. It's about who the people in this kingdom are. And they are the poor in spirit, the meek, those who mourn, the pure in heart. They're those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. They're the merciful, the peacemakers. And they're those who are persecuted because of the life they live and the Lord they love. And this kingdom is about being and it's about having. It's about having a significant impact on the world around them. It's about being salt of the earth and the light of the world. And remember, being the salt of the earth is about the fruit of the Spirit. It's about the noticeably different life that we live, a life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Let me ask you, could our world use some love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? Man, they sure could. We're the salt of the earth. And we're to live that life, that salty life in our homes and where we work, where we go to school, in the marketplace, and when we type on social media. And being the light of the world is about the truth that we share and the Savior that we point to. This kingdom is about being, 
about having, and it's about living a life that's distinct from the world around us. And listen, what this distinct life, this different life actually looks like and lives like is where Jesus goes next in his kingdom manifesto. And brothers and sisters, believe me when I tell you, the deeper that we dive into Jesus' teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, it will become abundantly clear that living out his kingdom life is most definitely radical and countercultural. Understand, for the next 28 verses in Matthew 5, Jesus gives six examples of kingdom living that were then and are still now relevant, weighty, and often very contentious. And I want us to read all 28 verses this morning so that we can kind of get the impact that these verses had to the people who first heard Jesus speak them on that hillside. We're going to reflect on a few of those verses this morning. Okay, Matthew chapter 5, 21 through 48. Turn in your Bibles or your app. I'm not going to put it on the screen or just listen. Word of God, speak. And Spirit of God gives us ears to hear and eyes to see. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to the judgment. But I tell you, someone say, but I tell you, that anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Therefore, if you're giving your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, and then come offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you'll not get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, someone say, but I tell you, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand calls you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual morality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord your vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear on earth at all, either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot even make one hair black or white. I've done a pretty good job making my white. All you need to do is simply say yes or no. Anything beyond that is from the evil one. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, someone say, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants you to sue you and take your shirt, hand them your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. 
If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Or not even the tax collectors doing that. And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. May God bless the reading of his word. Now we hear this teaching of Jesus, and we think to ourselves, wow, that was intense. That was extreme. That was so uncomfortable. Maybe even a little frightening. Yeah, we think to ourselves, that, that, that's an ideal. And so we reason with ourselves, and we think that there's no way we can live up to it. Like, seriously, don't lust, don't become angry, keep your word all the time, love those you promise to love forever, no matter what, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Man, I can't see that ever happening. Now, understand, one thing I, I want to try to avoid doing as we dive into this section of the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, is to spend the majority of my time trying to explain what Jesus did not mean by this text. Question, you ever been to that sermon? Now, to my disgrace, I, <laughs> I preached that sermon. You know where we say something like this? Now, let me explain the reasons why we can get out of what Jesus said about turning the other cheek, about not lusting, about not becoming angry, about staying and not giving up on a difficult marriage, and really loving with God's kind of love those who hurt you and persecute you. Yeah, I get it. I mean, these words of Jesus in Matthew 5 come to us just like they came to those who first heard them, like a 12-ton bomb was just dropped on top of us. Question, what should we, what do we do with the teaching of Jesus about what it really means to be his people and to live in his kingdom? I mean, do we ignore it? Do we run from it? Do we avoid it, change it, distort it? Do we reshape it to fit better what we want and what our culture says? Do we convince ourselves that what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount is not all that important for us to follow and obey? I mean, after all, we are New Testament people. And God loves us. And he wants us to be happy. And he does not require anything of or from us. Understand to really dive into what the Sermon on the Mount says is not for the faint of heart. And i got to be honest, in all my years of preaching, I have never jumped into the deep end of this text like I'm jumping into the deep end right now. And i got big arms, and I'm going to drag you all with me, right? I mean, this is some stuff. This is some tough stuff that we're, hey, let's, let's talk more about love and grace. And, uh, Jesus is pro-love and grace. Now, there's some things we need to keep in mind if we want to understand and live out what Jesus is teaching in his radical manifesto about kingdom living. Uh, we must, number one, avoid the tendency to think that Jesus has set himself up against the law. You know, this idea that the, in these six you have heard it said, but I say to you statements that Jesus basically said, hey, there's a new sheriff in town, and there's a new way of both looking at and understanding God. Again, this idea that 
the law was just a bunch of rules and regulations and, and how Jesus and New Testament is all about grace and God's love. And how the Old Testament only cared about outward acts and is now being replaced by the new way of the heart. However, we know that's not true. Because Jesus made it clear when we, in the text we dove into last week that despite what people were thinking, he did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus said that the law is enduring as the heavens and the earth, and not, not the smallest letter, the least stroke of the pen will ever disappear from the law. And Jesus said in Matthew 5, 19, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now, now, now that the phrase sets aside is the Greek word luo. It means to loosen, to untie, to relax, to unbind. It, it, it was used when uh, disciples untying the donkey that Jesus rode on or when John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to untie sandals. Or when Lazarus came hopping out of the tomb and Jesus said, hey, unbind him and let him go. And so the idea in Matthew 5, 19 is someone relaxing or loosening what God has called us to do, what God has already bound. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whatever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says anyone who relaxes, loosens these commands and teaches others to do the same Hey, it's not a big deal. You don't really need to do that. Let me loosen that from you. What we call the least. And this is where people think, I am so glad I'm not a teacher. Right? I mean, being a teacher of God's word is serious business. I think we all know that, right? I mean, some of us read in our Bible reading this week, we read James chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Raise your hand if you want to be judged more strictly, right? Aren't you glad you're not a teacher? But listen, here's the deal. Sure, you may not be a teacher standing behind, I would say a pulpit, but this is like a music stand, right? Pulpit wannabe, right? Uh, or, or you're not standing in a Sunday classroom. But what about being a teacher when you're sitting at Starbucks having coffee with somebody? Are you ever a teacher then? Like, like, do we ever relax or loosen God's teaching when we're drinking our favorite latte with a friend? Maybe a friend who's battling anger and bitterness, or struggling with lust, or an ungodly relationship, or considering a divorce, or no longer attending, serving, or giving to the church. And we tell that friend, you have a right to be angry at them. What they did to you and what they're doing to you is so wrong it's so unjust, you have every right to be angry and display that anger any way you see fit. Well, at least you haven't acted on those lustful feelings. Besides, everybody lusts. God wants you to be happy. And it's obvious that you're in a miserable marriage. I know they're not the perfect fit for you, but God doesn't want you to be alone. God knows that your life is crazy busy right now, he understands, and you can get back to all the church stuff when things settle down. Again, we may not feel comfortable standing up here and saying those things, but somehow 
In a coffee shop, it just, it just feels different, right? Yet Jesus, anyone who loosens or relaxes what God has taught will be called the least. And, and, and one more thing to avoid when trying to understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 is thinking that Jesus is arguing with the law. He's not. It makes no sense for Jesus in one, to say, hey, I'm not come to abolish the law, but the next verse say, hey, I'm done with it. Moses was all wrong. Let me set things straight. I'm sorry, what Jesus is doing in these six, you've heard it said, but I say to you statements, is correcting the faulty misinterpretation of the law that were being taught to the people by the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And like I said last Sunday, by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, these teachers and their interpretation or misinterpretation had become the official interpretation of what the law meant, what the Old Testament meant, and what it meant to follow God. And another thing to keep in mind is that when the Jews returned from Babylon captivity, they mostly forgotten their own language and could no longer read or write Hebrew, which meant that they were dependent on the rabbis <laughs> to read what God said and tell the people, here's what God said and here's what you're supposed to do. Again, I'm just saying, Jesus is not setting himself up against the law, but against the teaching of the Pharisees who had distorted the law and reduce it to mere outward behavior. Well, you never, nur- you never murdered anyone, good, you're good to go. You never committed the act of adultery, good, you're good to go. A plus, go get your sticker. A second thing we need to be aware of, if we want to understand the Sermon on the Mount, is so we have to avoid the tendency to think the kingdom is only about the heart. Any question? <laughs> What does Jesus want from us? Like, what do you want from us as you lay out your teaching sermon on the mount? Like, how can we ever live up to this standard, Jesus? And listen, when the original audience heard Jesus say, unless your righteousness, in Matthew 5, 20, exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom. And their immediate response was, then who can? Like, if these guys who have devoted their lives to it, if they're failing, then who can? Jesus, what's the point? Jesus, are you here to tell me that no matter what, I can't do this? Yes and no. Jesus' answer is yes and no. And here's the deal, what Jesus is calling for, and and guys, I really want you to hear this because this gets to the very heart of what it is meant to be a follower of God from the very beginning. Like, like this is the uniform, consistent teaching throughout all of Scripture. It isn't a new way of looking at the old. It's not a new way of looking at God. No, this is how God has always been. This is what has always meant to follow after him. And in Jesus, we see this shine in the brightest. Listen, what God wants and what God has always called his people to is to have an integrated head, heart, and hands. That's what he wants. And that's why it's wrong to say that what God wants you to do is just know, just know these things. And yes, to believe in him is, is to know right things in part. But it's also wrong to say all God wants is your heart. That it doesn't matter what you know. Well, that Bible actually says it does matter what we know. I Make mean, consistently the prophets and the apostles would say to the people, 
We do not want you to be ignorant. We do not want you to be uninformed. These are some things that we want you to know about who God is and about what it means to follow after him. Listen, there are two very wrong things in the Bible. One is to worship the wrong God. The other is to worship the right God, but to worship him wrongly. Brothers and sisters, our minds matter. So we just can't say it's all, it's all about the heart. It's not just about the heart. It's about knowing the right things about God. And then it's about our hearts faithfully feeling and responding, living, breathing, repenting, breathing, breaking, strengthening, being encouraged, going on, failing, and breaking. And that once again being reinformed by the Holy Spirit, guided and protected. It's about your heart and mind being in a constant, responsive transformation to the Word of God, to the Spirit of God, in the context of the people of God. See, Jesus is wanting our head and our hearts to be in unity. But it never stops there. Understand, nowhere in the Bible does it say, if you know the right things and you feel the right way, you're good to go. That's enough. Listen, the natural outflow, listen, the natural outflow of a head and heart that are knowing and feeling and responding to what God has said and to what God is doing, our hands and feet that are loving and moving, calling out and providing for justice and compassion and goodness and grace and love and mercy and faithfulness wherever we go. Amen? See, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is doing what the prophets all did. He's calling us back to who God is and he's calling us back to God's plan for us, for his glory, for our joy, and for the benefit of others. I'm calling you back to what God has always wanted for his people. From the very beginning, a people whose head and heart and hands are surrendered to and fully committed to him. Get it? Good. And in order to do that, Jesus had to Break through all of the lies that the religious leaders have been teaching the people for the last few centuries about who God is and about what it really means to follow him. Because they did they said, all that matters is your hands. And you know what? There might just be a few lies that we may need to break through as well. <laughs> that we heard or maybe even taught about what it really means to follow after Jesus and who God is. Now listen, the Pharisees did this for the best intentions. Now understand, these guys were living in the wake when the entire nation said, you know what, we're going to worship idols and we're going to do whatever we want to do, God. And God said, okay, you want to worship idols? Let's see how much they help you. Not much. The nation was destroyed, taken to captivity. And in that captivity, they were humbled in that humility, they said, you know what? We will never take God's laws lightly again. We will never worship idols again. In fact, we'll build walls around God's commands. That, that we'll make sure that we never break them. Never get close to breaking them. Understand, the Pharisees are, are the poster, child poster people of religious leaders with the best intentions getting it all wrong. As we strive to understand the Sermon on the Mount, we must resist thinking he's setting himself against the law. He's not. 
Now, the kingdom is only about the heart. It's about, it's about your head. It's about your heart. It's about your hands. Are you with me? I know that's a lot of stuff, but it's important. That is, if we really want to understand, and I do, if we really want to live out what Jesus is teaching about the kingdom manifesto. Our time remaining, I want us to look at what Jesus wants to talk and say about murder and anger and adultery and lust. I know our time is limited, but I think we know, all know what anger is and what lust is. But one more thing before we jump in there that's really important to understand what's going on here. Now, now Matthew, beginning in the birth of Jesus, was painting this picture how Jesus is like the second Moses, right? He's the son of God called out of Egypt, Matthew 2, verse 15. He passes through the water of baptism like the Red Sea, Matthew 3, 13 and 17. He is tested in the wilderness by Satan in Matthew 4. And now he comes up onto the mountainside and begins teaching about God. Remember last week I said that God's plan has always been from the beginning about delivering, rescuing, redeeming a people from bondage, making them his own, and then setting them apart as a people distinct. God's plan has always been about delivering, rescuing, and redeeming a people from bondage, making them his own, and then setting them apart as a people distinct from those in the world for his glory and the world's good. That's been his plan from the beginning. That's still his plan now. And Jesus telling these people, and you could maybe call this the second Sinai, if you will, God's people. And the good news is, now we have a new power called the Holy Spirit, and we have a, a new focus. We're not living for our salvation, we're living from our salvation. And this new power, and then this new focus of living from, not living for, is what enables us, makes this life and living it actually possible. Get it? Good. Let's talk about anger. Do you think anger is out of control, an issue in our world today? You've heard it said to the people long ago. And you notice he doesn't say, it is written. Throughout the Gospels, when Jesus quotes the Old Testament, he says, it is written. Like in Matthew 4. It is written, man does not live by bread alone. It, it, it is written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. It is written, you're to worship and serve the Lord only. So again, he's not, referring to, he's not referring to the Old Testament law. He's referring to the misinterpretation that has been around for centuries. And when something's been around for centuries, that's the way it's always been, right? That's how we do things. You've heard what was said long ago to the people. You've heard what Rabbi so-and-so said. We could say, you've heard what pastor so-and-so said. And I got to tell you, here's one of my greatest concerns for Jesus followers today, is that a lot of people know what pastor so-and-so says. A lot of people know what their mom says, their dad says, their friend says, what Oprah says, whatever, but they don't know what God says. Well, here's what Here's what the nightly Lou says about this. What does God say? Listen, if you're banking on what I say, or what your mom says, or a friend says, that's not so good. I'm not saying teachers aren't important, but we got to be careful, right? 
You've heard it said you should not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Anyone says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answered with a court. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus is like, hey, you've been told that as long as you don't murder somebody, you're good to go. You met God's standard. He said, hey, my kingdom is not simply about committing the act. It's about what's going on inside of you. It's not just about your hands. It's about what's going inside of it, but what's in your heart. And now there's, there's two words the Greeks used for anger. One was an anger that kind of came and went. Another was an anger that just kind of sat there and it grew and it festered, right? This is the anger he's talking about there. And it doesn't mean that anger that comes and goes quickly isn't bad, but the anger that is most damaging and has the most consequences, the anger that just sits there and grows and grows, and we put another log on it and another log on it, and it becomes a blazing inferno. And he says, Raka, Raka means empty-headed. It'd be like calling someone stupid or moron. It's basically having contempt for someone. Jesus says to have those feelings is the same as murder. Listen, anger can cause us to say some terrible things with our tongues. Lawrence Peter says, speak when you're angry and you'll make the best speech you'll ever regret. <laughs> ever make those speeches? If your anger goes so far where you call someone a fool, which to us, we call everybody a fool every day, right? I'm driving on the road. You fool! <laughs> you know? Didn't you, did you see the light turn green? Right? But back then, it, it meant a lot more. It meant that they were morally deficient, that they were godless. It basically meant, you know what? You're not worthy of God, and you're going to hell. Jesus said, if you think that way about a person, guess who may be going there? And he's not saying that we punch your ticket to hell by calling someone a fool. But he said, hey, when you hate someone that much, and you have contempt for them, and it just bulls inside of you, you're headed in the wrong direction. Again, we may say, hey, but I didn't kill anybody. That's no reason to boast. Has anybody been angry at you and you just knew they felt contempt for you? Didn't kind of feel like murder? Didn't feel like they were killing something inside of you? I remember years ago sitting in, in the table across from somebody who didn't like me very well. And he says, you know what, Steve, a lot of people just wish you were dead. And I said, well, that's really messed up for a Christian to say that. And, and, but yet, you know what? It still hurt. Like, wow, there's someone that just wish I was dead, that wish I didn't even exist. Matter of fact, John said in his letter, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Nah. You know that no murderer has eternal life. Jesus wants us to see that breaking the commandment, do not murder, is something deeper than just the act itself. Before it's an act, it's a thought. And Jesus wants what's going on in our hearts and minds to stop before it's the breaking point. Listen, when it comes to unrestrained anger, man, just when you turn to Neva, it's so uncontrolled right now. It's a rage. And nothing I don't care what side is doing it. Nothing justifies the kind of anger and rage and contempt and hatred that people have for one another in our world. 
Please don't sit in a coffee shop and say, well, you have a right to be that angry. People have been mean to you. No, they don't. Be angry for what God is angry about, but don't condone out-of-control rage and anger. And Jesus gives two examples, right? He says, if you're going to give me your gift at the altar or your way to the court. Basically, you have someone in church and someone out of church. And the point is basically this. Hey, if there's something big between you, deal with it as quick as you can. Deal with it before it grows. Deal with it before it gets so bad that the relationship is destroyed completely forever. Deal with it before your anger spreads to other people and pulls other people in. And it just gets to be a terrible, angry, rageful mess. Anger is a big deal. A big deal to God. It should be a big deal to us. Amen? In your notes, I put some scripture references. Scripture references. I don't have time to read those because I want to talk about lust. All right. Question. Is lust a problem in our culture? <laughs> no, the Bible's not relevant, is it? You further have said, you should not commit adultery, but I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman has already committed adultery in his heart. She's like, hey, You've been told that as long as you don't commit the act of adultery, you're doing great, you're good, get your sticker, head of the class. But he says, in my kingdom, it's not simply about committing the act. It's about what's going on inside of you. It's about what's inside your heart. One of the commentators I read this week wrote this. It's so good. Do you conceal lust in your heart but counting yourself righteous because you never followed through with the act? Jesus says, not on your life. Adultery is not limited to the act. It includes the gazing and lingering look that objectifies another person to whom you're not married in a covenant relationship. This is a gaze, not a glance. Looks is a present participle and could be translated, keeps on looking. The gaze excites sexual imaginations in the heart and you mentally engage in an act reserved for your spouse in the marriage bed, end quote. Now some would say, well, there's no harm in looking. You can look at the menu as long as you don't order the meal. You can shop as long as you don't buy. Look, it's not a big deal. You know, I think we disagree with you, David. Understand, before he committed murder and broke almost every one of the Ten Commandments, it started with a look. It started with him going to the top of the roof and watching another man's wife bathe. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis, the great apologist, talks about the issue of lust, and he writes the following in his chapter on sexual morality. Chastity, being faithful to one man, one woman, covenant marriage, is the most unpopular of all Christian virtues. There's no getting away from it. The Christian rule is either marriage with complete faithfulness to your partner or else total abstinence. Now, this is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that obviously either Christianity is wrong or our sexual instinct as it is now has gone wrong. One or the other. Of course, being a Christian, I think it is the instinct that has gone wrong. And he goes on to say that, you know, that our God-given instinct for sex, God created sex, God is pro-sex, right? He, did not, he created sex to be pleasurable for a, a husband and a wife. He did not have to use that for we could have a baby. He could have put a button on somebody, push a button, that pops a baby, right? He didn't have to create what he did, but that's how he did it because he's pro-sex. But sex is out of control in our world today. And then he gives this powerful analogy. 
Well, how insane it is when something God-giving is out of control when it's gone off the rails. C.S. Lewis. You can get a large audience together to watch a girl undress on stage. Now suppose you come to a country where you could fill a theater simply by bringing a covered plate on the stage then slowly lifting the cover so everyone can see just before the lights went out that it contained a mutton chop or a bit of bacon. Would you not think in that country something had gone wrong with the appetite for food? Continues, and would you not, and would not anyone who had grown up in a different world think that there was something equally wrong about the state of the sex instinct among us? You've heard it said that as long as you don't do the act, you're okay. You've heard it said that as long as no one else gets hurt, it's okay. You've heard it said that as long as it's between two consenting adults and they love each other, it's okay. But I say to you, but I say to you, the one who delivered you, the one who redeemed you, who rescued you, who's playing a home from you, the one who's the ruler of both heaven and hell, I say to you, if you allow lustful thoughts to, in, to grow in your mind for someone who is not your spouse, you've committed adultery. You see, we need to be like Job. We need to adopt the Job's plan when it comes to lust. Job 31.1 says, Job, Job knew about it. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look with lust at a young woman. I understand because lust is such a big deal. Jesus uses two powerful illustrations, right? Hey, if your eye causes you to lust, gouge it out. Throw it away. It's better to have your eye gone than have your body thrown in hell. Your hand calls you to sin. Cut it off. Better to lose part of your body, then your whole body thrown into hell. And he's using hyperbole, exaggeration, make his point. Since lust is so dangerous, can a man scoop fire into his lap without burning his clothes? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? Since lust is so dangerous, since lust takes you further than you want to go and keeps you longer than you want to stay, since lust never delivers what it promises, since Lust unchecked can lead to some extremely drastic consequences. We must do whatever it takes to overcome it. Gouge out our eye, cut off our hand. It's just a metaphor. It's all it is. Lust is a problem. A guy named Sinclair Ferguson gives like, hey, here's four ways you can overcome lust. One, realize where yielding to sinful lust will lead you. H-E-double-L, right? According to Jesus, right? Don't argue with the messenger. Go talk to Jesus. That's what he said. I mean, recall that, right? Hey, you know what? Is this worth it? Is, 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 is this worth it? Is this momentary pleasure worth, now, whether you go out or not, I think we all agree that's not what God wants, right? And that is hurting your relationship with God. Is this worth it? Deal with the real cause of your sin. It's an impure heart that settles for God's substitutes. And this is simply idolatry. What is there in your life that you put in the place of God? That you desire more than you desire God. So you realize, you deal, you act. Act decisively and immediately. Even if it's painful. 
Remember, obedience cannot be negotiated. Neither can heaven or hell. It's always the right time to do the right thing. Act decisively. Maybe we need to stop going to certain places. Stop doing certain things. Getting some accountability on our computers. So at night, we're not tempted to look at things on the internet that we should not be looking at. And pornography is an epidemic in our world today. And parents of kids, don't be so naive to think your kids with a computer or phone or tablet that the enemy cannot throw images before them that'll draw them in to addiction they wish they could shake off. It may be if you struggle with a sexual sin or pornography, getting accountability. It may maybe even breaking off a relationship that's not godly. Man, we've crossed lines we shouldn't have. And I, I need to either make this relationship godly or need to leave it. I met many times I've had with people who were living together and God's given the opportunity to share with them and and I've been able to say, hey, you know what? You need to repent, abstain, and get married. And if you repent and abstain and get married, when you get married, you are just as pure as anyone ever walked down that aisle. Because God's grace is enough, amen? But we can't say, well, it's okay. It's okay, you love each other. You've had a rough life. You've heard it said, right? We wouldn't teach it up here, but somehow, I mean, I can be the same way at Starbucks. I'm not just dogging on you. Oh, yeah, I know, but no, right? Jesus knows what's best. And, and, and then he says, realize that your lust is not the whole of your life. He writes, even the main part or the most important part of your life. Think and understand what you gain by abandoning it. You get Christ in heaven thrown in. Sin is a cruel taskmaster, and lust is one of its favorite instruments to keep you enslaved and in bondage. Jesus came to rescue you, to set you free from this never-satisfied tyrant. Treasure him above all else. What you gain will put to shame what you give up. Amen? You've heard it, that it was said. But I say to you, and maybe there's someone, right, in, in this room, that has some anger, some bitterness, some hatred, some contempt for somebody. And that's been me at times. And I convinced myself I was justified. And as a pastor, I convinced myself I can feel that way because they hurt the church. Jesus is like, church is okay. I'm fine. It's about you, Steve. They hurt you. They offended you, right? So, Believe me, I'm not saying, hey, you know what? I'm never angry. I never lust. I'm just this, you know. What? No, I struggle with anger. I struggle when people hurt me and, and, and offend me and betray me and abandon me. I struggle with that and having harboring wrong feelings. And Jesus says, don't do it. Don't do it. If you convince yourself it's okay to be mad at somebody, and hold them in contempt and think they're not worthy of God, they're not worthy of your love, repent. Today, now. 
And if you're playing around with lust, entertaining thoughts you shouldn't, and if you're looking at pornography, then you shouldn't. Your relationship that's not God honoring, repent. And what we give up in our sin, compared to what we get in Christ, there is no comparison. It all goes back to the very beginning that we talked about as I started this sermon. That love, right? And if you love somebody, you fulfill the law. If you love someone, you're not going to objectify them. If you love someone, you're not going to cause them to cross boundaries that crush their heart. You're going to protect them. So I'm going to protect you. I'm going to protect your heart. I'm not going to allow you to cross boundaries that are going to hurt you. And again, it all comes back to love, right? We're going to, uh, I should have picked a different city because I'm not that fond of New York City, right? I don't know if I'm fond of any city, right? But hey, we're going to New York City, right? We're going to love people. And we're going to learn how to love them better. And we're going to listen to what Jesus says and not what we want to hear. And we're going to strive to be the people that he wants us to be. Again, anything we think we give up in Christ, we gain back the more. But listen, not for the faint of heart, right? Not for the faint of heart. But it's for the best of our heart. And when our head and our heart and our hands are in line with God, we will experience more and more that inexpressible and glorious joy and that peace that transcends all understanding. Amen. Hey, we're going to sing a song. And, and as we start singing, we have, you can grab our communion at the communion stations. Bring it back. We'll take it together. We have our offering boxes there. We also have those blue buckets by two of the stations, our compassion buckets. And, you know, we had a compassion meeting after church last Sunday. And we're going to be helping out uh, two moms. Uh, a single mom who needs some help to, with tutoring for her son, and a, a, unfortunately, a, a new single mom, military wife who had lost her husband. And because of our compassion bucket, we're giving them some money to help them out, put gas in the tank, so put some food at the table. Let them know, hey, there's people out there that care and that they're not alone. So you've got a few bucks, toss that in there. But again, if you're here today, this is your time right here. And, and you know where everything gets solved? It gets solved at the cross of Jesus. Would you stand and pray with me? Jesus, we love you, and we're so grateful for your word. And Lord, when you said your word is a double-edged sword and it cuts, it does. And God, today your word, what you said on that hillside, calling us back to what you've always been about, what God always required from the very beginning is a people with heads and hearts and hands surrendered to you, fully devoted to you. And God, I pray for each of us that we allow the Holy Spirit to move in us and if we're harboring anger, may we repent at the cross. If we struggle with lust, God, today we can repent. The time of repentance is now, not later, but right now, God. God, I pray you lead us to the cross right now. And Spirit, just speak to us. In Jesus' name, amen.